Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 80-something of the podcast. Uh, I can't remember exactly where we are, but somewhere in the 80s. So uh, anyway, we're not that really new of a podcast anymore, but for you first-time listeners out there, people who are just tuning in for the first time, basically what we try to do on this podcast is uh, I invite an author on to uh, discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published uh, something we think you guys would like to hear a discussion a discussion about, and then uh, hopefully at the end of the podcast or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go out and uh, purchase the book for yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Mr. Noah Rothman, and... Uh, Noah Rothman is the associate editor of Commentary, which is probably my favorite magazine in the whole wide world. Uh, he is also an MSNBC and NBC News contributor and the author of Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. But his latest book is The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, uh, which was just published a couple days ago by Broadside Books and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Mr. Rothman, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. So, um, uh, what made you want to write this book? What was the uh, genesis of it, and uh, how much credit uh, uh, does your wife get for it? <laughs> a fair amount. So, the the genesis of the book was that I was absolutely miserable. <laughs> it was uh, it was late 2020, late fall, early early winter. Um, depths of the pandemic. The riots were just you know, in the rearview mirror, and every American institution had committed itself to reconceptualizing the idea of the United States as being some sort of a horrible uh, incubator of terrors and, and misery and injustice. And it was not a fun time to be covering politics, which I usually find quite enjoyable. That's why I geared my career towards it, and I'm sitting with my wife and saying, I am miserable, and you know, what, what are we going to do about this? You know, Got to keep making money, but it is just, just soul-sucking. She said, well, what do you want to do? Well, if I had my druthers, you know, I'd go talk to the people in industries that I enjoy, chefs, uh, you know, playwrights, entertainers, comics, sports broadcasters. No, no, you can't. Because even those institutions have been uh, taken over by politics, corrupted by politics. There's no escape from this political milieu. And she says, that's the book. And that was the book. Um, so uh, her... My accidental idea, her uh, encouragement, and uh, and then all my writing. So, but she gets she gets credit for the for the idea, and I'll, I just did the labor. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, the new Puritans normally um, we associate um, puritanicalism, or at least uh, stick in the mud uptightness with right. with the right. Um, and we usually sort of, or at least culturally, it seems like we only sort of associate that uh, self-righteousness with the right. Um, but uh, this is the, the, the progressive war on fun. So um, how, uh, how does this new uh, progressive puritanicalism, how does that, uh, how did it come about and how does it... Um, how is it intertwined with the old, you know, 17th century, uh, original OG Puritanism? 
Right. So the you know, Puritans, capital P Puritans, get get kind of a bad rap. Mm. Um, they bequeathed us with a remarkably durable legacy, despite the relatively short-lived Puritan experiment. Um, and what we typically think, and this frustrates scholars of Puritanism to no end, but what the, the stereotype that we typically uh, think of when we think of Puritanism isn't so much the, uh, the, the colonial Puritan period, but what it evolved into, the, um, a very prudish and zealous uh, form of moral policing from the 19th century in the Victorian period mm-hmm. and the very beginnings of progressive politics as we understand it today. It's recognizable today, with, which had a heavy dose of mainline Protestantism and the zeal that you associate with uh, that mission and in, in New England, frankly. Um, so, yeah, when you typically think of that stereotype of Puritanism, uh, you know, up, uptight, prudish, priggish, uh, capable of seeing uh, influences, corrupting influences in seemingly innocent <laughs> cultural fare that would that would corrupt you and degrade society as a whole. We, we typically associate that with the right because for all our all our adult lives, that tendency was almost exclusively on the right, the left, left liberals emphasized self-fulfillment, self-gratification, even hedonism uh, to the to the point of self-destruction uh, at, by contrast. But that has begun to change and change rapidly over the course of the last five, ten years. And this book does note the extent begins with a, that mystery. How did this happen? But it also, you know, demonstrates the ways in which you can see this manifest. Uh, why entertainment companies are committing themselves to imposing, the, you know, themes that aren't necessarily that don't advance a plot line, but right. that make make media products more socially valuable, more valuable than the, the trite uh, fare that is just entertainment for entertainment's sake. Uh, why you you should feel anguish? In fact, you're you're admonished if you don't feel anguish over the destruction that the, your food you eat is is uh, meeting out to your environment and your communities. Why comedians uh, dwell on the pain that somebody somewhere had to experience so you could enjoy something as frivolous as a punchline and why your sports coverage is accompanied by long digressions about the lamentable state of race relations in this country. And when fans object, as they so often do, are admonished explicitly for privileging their need for a diversion, for a for escapism, over their duty to dwell on the world's horrors. This is a yeah, moral. It's, it's part of your privilege that you get to uh, watch sports and tune out the world uh, when you know, so many other people don't have that luxury. Blah blah blah. That sort of thing. Yeah, this is a moral framework, and when you tease out the threads, you can pull them from to from the 19th century and the sort of staid Victorianism, and you pull a little further, and you, it's not long before you get to. The 1700s, the 1600s, and this kind of puritanical ethos. As purit- as liberals identify less with liberalism and more with progressivism, they've adopted its habits of mind. Mm-hmm. Among them, um, anxiety over the prevalence of wickedness in banal pastimes, a hatred and a fear of idleness. Uh, that which is idle is an empty vessel to be filled up with with wickedness, uh, and a meliorous tendency towards you know utopian thought. But this is to accompany, and that's that's progressivism as we understand it. The puritanical aspect of it is that this is so often accompanied by great displays of discomfort and uh, anguish and self-denial. And this is a means by which you can communicate your piety and zealousness and discipline. Uh, and it's total insofar as this is not a private practice. This yeah. is something you are being drafted into. Progressives might not recognize 
the latent Puritanism in their philosophy, but that is um, that is vanity on their part mm-hmm. and historical illiteracy. And also it's their problem. And so this book is it's designed to fix that. Yeah. Um, do you think there would be quite how to put this? Could this new uh, Puritanism have arisen without the old Puritanism, <laughs> uh, without that being in the American sort of cultural bloodstream? Uh, say there was no uh, the the founding of the of the of the settling of the continent happened differently, and there was no uh, Puritan footprint uh, in New England in the 17th century. Um, would this new Puritanism still have arisen as it has today, or um, would it look different? Or is, do you see what I'm trying to say? Is that possible? I mean, that's a good question, and it's sort of measuring a non-event, so it's yeah. it's difficult to speculate. the The zealotry that we're privy to today is not unique to the United States, um, particularly in revolutionary societies or societies that have a revolutionary ethos. Um, you can, you know, from from the Bolshevik Revolution to the uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran, mm-hmm. you all you see this form of, uh, of zealotry and revolutionary zeal and uh, immoral uh, prescriptions um, in societies across the the planet. The Puritan experience is a transit unique transatlantic idea, and that typifies quite a lot of our experience. So what we have is I, I can't imagine what we would have had in the absence of these conditions. Um, but what we do have is a legacy of uh, moral policing of the the um, the guarding of public morality against degeneracy and degenerate influences and the the an idea of social organization that privileges this sort of uh, of morality uh, that is unique in to the American experience and the Puritanism that set its roots down in New England soil uh, was actually a little bit more zealous mm-hmm. than its uh, its cousins across the the pond as it were. So uh, it is just unique and native to the American experience. And while they're, this is, these are human traits that sure. I'm identifying, surely, and this is not something that is unique to progressives at, in any way. I definitely go out of my way multiple times in the book to convey, uh, mostly to progressives who are hostile to the idea, that this, these traditions are something we all inherited. We're all the legatees of this tradition, and it has found a home in every political coalition throughout mm-hmm. the course of uh uh, American history. So it's not especially unique uh, in, in human terms. It is very unique in American terms. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, well, you're um, towards the end of the book that uh, uh, tension is um, sort of the overarching theme of the book. Could you uh, explain uh, to the listener what you mean by that? How is t- How is tension the overarching theme of this book? Right. Well, tension is just a feature of you know, every many healthy societies, but especially uh, the United States. Um, this, the tensions that I describe are those that again exist outside the political context. When it, you know this, this book is focused not on law, not on government, not on education, not on the labor force, unless right. cultural you, stuff. By, unless in labor, you're creating cultural products. That yeah. then it applies to you, but otherwise. It doesn't. Um, so we see, we obviously see tensions in, in American politics, but we do see kind of a cultural and intergenerational uh, tension that is is very healthy. It's a sort of thing that um, that frustrates only individuals who are 
who are perceive who perceive nonconformity to be menace uh, and confuse um, uh, conflict with violence. Tension is particularly healthy. The, those concerned with the, the creation of a monoculture regard tension with distrust. So this book describes tension, intergenerational tensions. It describes tensions between geographies and regions, um, tension between entertainers and their audiences, because your suspension of disbelief is constantly something you consistently rage against, um, tension between religions and ideologies and competing moral codes and public and the authorities and um, what they're entrusted to do. This tension is very healthy. Um, it bends in shapes and tests what the uh, monoculturists on the left are frustrated by is that tension. And when it is finally and lastly released and we no longer have that tension, we will no longer have the dynamism that mm. characterizes the American experiment. So we should regard this kind of friction with a, a sort of um, a sort of uh, uh, welcomeness because it is a, a feature of the American experiment, the American experience. And ultimately, uh, without it, we will be certainly infirmed, but it can mm -hmm. only be uh, extirpated from the American experience by force, uh, at, at which point the American experiment is over. So right. this it's not something that we should look upon with with disfavor. You know, that we flatter ourselves today, for example, when we think that we've evolved beyond moral panics. We most certainly have not. Um, but that, you know, this is a, the cycle explored in this book will certainly begin again anew in a generation or two generations when they look upon us with contempt and distrust and condescension because we are navigating the, this moral thicket. They, that, that generation will have its own moral panics that it will be contending with, but it will be thoroughly convinced of its own wisdom and its own righteousness as ours is. Mm -hmm. And that's that that cycle is something you can really count on. And all we should fear is its end. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I, I got back from vacation uh, the other day and uh, saw the new had the new issue of commentary uh, in my mailbox, and you have the uh, uh, basically the lead uh, the lead piece in the this month's uh, commentary uh, on. Uh, how food became politicized <laughs> by the new yeah. Puritans. Uh, talk a little bit about that. How uh, this this fight against uh, cultural appropriation of food and uh, uh, what did the progressives get out of, uh, in your words, their uh, their gratuitous demonstrations of their own capacity for self-deprivation? Right. Uh, yes. Yeah, so much of what we say in that ch in that chapter, and it doesn't include. Uh, efforts by cultural appropriation activists to uh, destroy that which is good, that which is lauded, that which is supported and en enjoyed by the local populations in part because they perceive it to be uh, an exercise in cultural theft. Um, and it's usually always something, it's never something that is actually a flippant and dismissive and contemptuous display of uh, uh, cross-cultural wisdom and cross-cultural, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, capacity. It's always something that does it pretty well. In fact, uh, in part, the popularity is, is and, and the popularity is also something that uh, is part of the fact that a lot of this language and a lot of these uh, moral prescriptions are used to prosecute professional jealousies in a very parochial way. But it is informed by a moral framework. And in that chapter, which is partly on food and partly on comedy, it's a chapter of, of, on prudence. Uh, 
because all the chapters are organized by yeah. un- unimpeachable virtues. There's a lot to say for this philosophy. The left has rediscovered a very old moral code, um, and it's not wholly um, uh, denounceable. But, for example, when you dive into uh, prescriptions on meat consumption, which are virtually unquestioned within this particular progressive sect, you uh, scratch the surface of superficially scientific language around the health defects associated with red meat consumption, the environmental impact, a deleterious impact of red meat consumption. And you quickly get to the language of morality and spirituality. Um, Red meat is revealed to us as a sin. It is an affront to the Eden into which you were born. It's it's a callous pleasure. It makes of you a burden on your community. Um, It's a display of cruelty towards animals. All of these things, the Puritans, capital P Puritans in the 1600s, 1700s, could not abide. Uh, And when you, when they activists begin to speak about this sort of stuff. They talk about it in terms of mental anguish that borders the, on the spiritual. It's a sort of self-deprivation. One individual I quote even describes it as Christ-like, um, echoing <laughs> sentiments like that are were expressed by Increase Mather and uh, Jeremiah Burroughs about your need to suffer and endure hardship to demonstrate your capacity for uh, zeal for the cause. I also go into the ever unending crusade to get you to eat bugs, not because they're palatable. Indeed, no one even talks about palatability, of which they probably are. I'm well-prepared. I'm perfectly happy to accept the idea. I have a adventurous palate. Perfectly happy to accept the idea that well-prepared insect cuisine is indeed enjoyable. But (laughs) (laughs) enjoyment is never discussed. Palatability is never discussed. Indeed, it's kind of a trite idea because what you should be— It's beside the point. Beside the point, the yeah, point yeah. is that you're, quote, saving the world. You're contributing to a perceived social good. Your self-satisfaction is sub- is, is um, subordinate to this contribution that you will make to the greater good, and that, that alone should be sustenance. Likewise, um, the there's something of a an exclusive club, and this is throughout the book. There's a, an exclusivity associated with the idea that you can deconstruct the world around you and Mm. see its hideous hidden workings. That's the sort of thing that would lead, as the Guardian's Raj Patel did, a deconstruction of apple pie to discover its hideous colonialist racist roots. English uh, English pumpkin pie is the variant uh, that, that gave rise to Apple pie. It is a symbol of domesticity, which is basically the impri- the imprisonment of women in, in a sort of uh, servile uh, condition. Sugarcane is based on the exploitation of Black Caribbean laborers. Apples came from Central Asia and were brought to the continent by Spanish in- in conquistadors. Um, yeah. You know, it's the it's a it's a sim- every every sinful bite yeah. is a crime against quote food justice. This is the sort of thing that seems to the uninitiated like fanaticism. But they, mar- they believe it to be a mark of their seriousness, of their sense of purpose and mission and education uh, and uh, indeed uh, elite status. Yeah. There, there's currency in this sort of thing, even though it sounds crazy and makes them and everyone else misery and mi- miserable. Um, it conveys a sort of power and purpose. Yeah. And that is self re- that's self-fulfilling. That's a rewarding condition. Yeah, I was going to say, I have no doubt that if, you know, there's all this – all these like bug pushers um, out there, you know, trying to get everybody to eat bugs because it's good for the environment and yada, yada, yada. Um, I have no doubt that if, if, if bug eating became 
like a thing. <laughs> like where normal, like just middle class and like working class, uh, like white people enjoyed, you know, if like yeah. started incorporating like bugs into their diet, <laughs> like every day, you know, or like a few times a week or something like that. I am sure that all the people pushing the bugs <laughs> then find a problem with, uh, with the bug eating. There would somehow be a way that, uh, well, you know, actually bug eating is cultural appropriation and actually it's racist. <laughs> it you, know, you know what I mean? Like, it, well, well, here's why it would, that would happen because it would only become something that would be widely adopted because people liked doing it. Yeah, right. It would be tasty, fulfilling, self-gratifying, and that's beside the point. Indeed, it has it's, to be. That's discouraged. actually wrong, right? Yeah, like it's enjoying actually wrong. wrong yeah. You should not be fulfilled and enjoying this experience because if you are, you are not enduring the sacrifice necessary for you to contribute to this perceived social cause. Um, it's kind of a digression. This is not in the book, but <laughs> one of the it. things that I think uh, contributes to this left backlash against Elon Musk who has done so much for the cause of environmentalism, if indeed you believe individual automobile emissions to be a primary driver of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, this guy has popularized the electric car in ways that were inconceivable previously. But he's hated for his efforts. Why? In part because he doesn't sacrifice anything doing it. The guy is having a, a rollicking good time with life. And, <laughs> maybe and maybe you, too much of a good know. time. Maybe too much. Maybe too much. <laughs> yeah, perhaps a little hedonistic, but that's no longer a value yeah. on the left. The, there are no displays of discomfort, of self-sacrifice, of ardor in pursuit of this good. And that is really a kind of an affront to this belief system that has, le has elevated um, – labor labor and and the and the public displays of anguish uh as as the value in and of itself above whatever the principle you're mm -hmm. supposed to promote is a big booming parade of sanctimony is what's valuable not the principle that it's supposed to support yeah i think maybe part of that too is um he doesn't spend his money the way they would like him to spend his money uh, you know with like the spacex stuff like you always see these people like why are all these billionaires spending all this money you know, just so they can, you know, have fun in space and try to get to Mars and uh, instead of, you know, funding whatever uh, cause I wish that they would uh, fund. And uh, yeah, that's maybe, an old school progress. That's like a Bernie Sanders progressive view. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, Achieving escape velocity should be the exclusive province of, of governance, governments. <laughs> right. And private uh, <laughs> enterprise should have nothing to do with this. So it's, as we have well passed you behind. Yeah, and I think it's I think it maybe it uh, might be sort of like the bug thing, like if uh, bugs became something that, nor like basically that like the normies did, that like the people who eat the bugs now um, would. It's like when you're if like you, you know like this people that are like that liked a band until it became like really popular, then they sort of mm -hmm. like hated the band. So it's sort of like uh, the Elon Musk thing sort of in there that like the the rich people who bought uh the teslas when teslas first came out uh you know was sort of the uh yeah you know, like like yeah the the and, and like the sort of the, the old south park like smug uh smug cloud thing you know with the remember that episode of south park where uh uh kyle's dad buys the uh um 
hybrid and he goes around like lecturing people like you know uh about how you know their cars um i haven't seen uh, it oh it's an old classic anyway so it's about so it's basically about how smug he becomes once he gets the electric car Mm. um so uh yeah so basically like the self-satisfaction yeah the teslas were like their thing and now that like teslas are becoming more popular and like not you know sort of they're in the reach of at least people um sort of upper middle class or or they're becoming you know reachable for the middle class uh because the price point is dropping on them that now that mark of their uh sort of superiority is taken away so they don't need to uh so they don't really care about their tesla anymore you know what i mean i don't yeah, know sure. if that's part of it yeah and no yes yeah, so a sense of self-satisfaction is very much the 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 reward the value proposition for adopting mm-hmm. this philosophy and the reward structure that there is for somebody who engages in these kind of gratuitous displays of um uh, uh sacrifice uh towards some what seems to me to be very much a spiritual exercise yeah uh and so yeah i mean there's something to be said for that as, as i said it's very much a human condition and there's a lot to be said for it if they're rediscovering a spirituality, if they're rediscovering an old moral code, uh, one that works. I mean, in the chapter on sex and booze, a chapter uh, entitled Temperance, mm-hmm. um, the left has rediscovered a really simple proposition, which is that in social situations in which men and women are present in the same room and it is bathed in alcohol, disruptive things can happen. Yeah. The social fabric can be rended by uh, – by accidental or deliberate violations of individuals, um, uh, individuals' private, privacy, private space, or even violence. Uh, that's the sort of thing that human beings have understood to be the case for, since time immemorial, with the exception of a very brief blip in American history typified by the aftermath of the sexual revolution, mm-hmm. um, which turned, which, in which you know, the left, uh, again, became uh, licentious, hedonistic, and elevated that to a virtue and a value system. Um, but it turned out to be a passing fad because it has not survived two generations. It seems like it's on the way out. Yeah. And as a result, you know, and this is something that I think is actually a very useful political tool for people who want to defang this movement, is that the younger generation that subscribes to these morals, while valuable in the abstract, uh, perhaps are being pursued, as I maintain, in an absolutist fashion that is unproductive. That this younger generation, self-reported, by the way, in statistics, is having less fun, is less sexual, is less adventurous than their grandparents. <laughs> they're more uptight yeah, they're, than, the peop- than the people who fought for this, uh, the for this way of life. Yeah. Right, who's, who are the baby boomer generation. Well, I mean, that they would strenuously object to that characterization, but it is the truth and they should be confronted with it. Do you, um, do you think that – that really has more to do with um, this sort of new uh, puritanical mindset? Or do you think it's just because these kids are kind of like, you know, just lame and just on their phones 24-7 or like in front of a screen and they don't really like do anything? Or, uh, you know, or they, they can, um, you know, you know, like I said, they can just be on their phone and like look at porn you know, like basically the whole the whole gamut the smorgasbord of any sort of uh, you know, pornographic situation you can think of is basically at their fingertips at this point. 
Um, and it's just, do you think it's just, uh, it's, it's more to do with just the screen time and just sort of being, it's not monocausal. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the uh, sort of rejection of licentiousness, but, yeah, but it's not just an, yeah, but it's, it's not just sex too. It's also like drugs and like smoking and like they're just they're doing fewer drugs. They're not smoking as much. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, even when they do vape, <laughs> you know, they're getting sure, sure. Uh, you know they're getting poo pooed for that. So do you think? Um, yeah. So go ahead. But anyway, like you're saying. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's very safety conscious. It is um, very uh, concerned with as I said, moral frameworks and the good working order of society and being a productive, good member of society. In the abstract, these are good values. Uh, but there are uh, real consequences for uh, falling on the wrong side of ever-shifting uh, moral prescription prescriptions and a labyrinthine code of conduct that governs mm. interpersonal relations. Um, so a, safety, a very safety-conscious generation has encountered a minefield where the minds move and um, you can combine those two things and you have a recipe for paralysis. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and, and this is again, not modern cause we could go on and on, but that sort of is the, is the locus of this, you know, John Hayden and, and Greg Lukianoff identify mm -hmm. 2013 in their book, the coddling of the American mind as sort of a turning point in which this sort of safety conscious mindset, which regards, um, nonconformity as a menace and uh, challenging ideas as violence. Uh, that sort of began around then and it migrated off campus and captured all these institutions mm -hmm. because it, it, in this fantastic act of piracy was engineered by their, uh, <laughs> by their um, uh, teachers and professors yeah. and, uh, and adults in their lives who taught them the language of the academy uh, to festoon their arguments with superficial authority uh, who taught them to use emotional and uh, moral blackmail to stifle dissent and uh, thereby capture institutions. They've been spectacularly successful about it, uh, which is the sort of the professional jealousies aspect of this thing, although it is informed by a moral code, and the moral code is very important uh, to understanding this phenomenon. In practice, it's a far more parochial pursuit of a leg up in career advancement on an individual level uh, but you know the moral code is something that I don't think you can ignore because otherwise you wouldn't understand this. But you'd think it's just a, a really a base pursuit with no other uh, animating ethos behind it, and that's a fundamental misapprehension of what these people are engaged in. They are they are very absolutely dedicated to what they believe to be a noble pursuit, and in some aspects, indeed in the abstract, it is a noble pursuit. It has been corrupted in the practice of it and in the means by which they seek to achieve it. Uh, in ways that are uh, incompatible with uh, liberal society, American society, first of all, and ultimately with you know how we choose to organize the society, and we'll continue to organize the society because it's it's it, it doesn't comport with our existing legal conventions or mm -hmm. with our philosophical commitment to uh, classical liberal values. Yeah, yeah. Uh, shifting gears again, uh, so bear with me uh, through this because uh, it's a little lengthy, but. Um, so you write that the behaviors of these new Puritans are uh, sort of predicated on the idea that the world can be perfected and that they're the ones that know how to perfect it. So that's not um, that's not new news to conservatives. I mean, uh, you know, conservatives have been warning against, you know, against that since, you know, Vogelin and, you know, the whole don't uh, immunitize the eschaton thing, you know, yeah. uh, that, that uh, sort of Gnostic uh, 
thinking of or behaviors that uh, that there's this uh, belief in a lack of concord within society um, as a result of uh, some inherent disorder or evil in the world and you know if to the new puritan that's that inherent disorder or evil is white supremacy or structural racism or you know whatever you want to call it and that they're the ones uh they believe that this disorder uh if i'm getting this right they believe this disorder can be transcended uh by the extraordinary insights and knowledge uh, that they possessed and the learning they have acquired. Um, uh, but then you write in chapter five um, of the book, I, don't, I just want to read this quote out because it's, it's pretty good. Uh, Beyond honestly believing they're doing the Lord's work, the new Puritans must also find it gratifying to think of themselves as uniquely perceptive. If you are so astute that you can see the hideous hidden workings of the world, you're a member of an exclusive club. And once you get a taste of that comprehensive vision, a theory of everything that reveals to you the secret seedy underbelly of society, it can become intoxicating. Those who are attracted to the psychological orientation, to this psychological orientation, are likely to find that its applications are limitless. And when they apply this framework to just about everything, mm. they find that just about everything is a problem. Uh, now, this sort of, this sounds like the classic frame of mind <laughs> of the conspiracy theorist. Um, mm. Are the presumptions of this movement uh, conspiratorial? Would you say that's interesting? They're certainly paranoid. Yeah. Uh, in that chapter, I cite um, uh, George McKenna, who's wrote one of the best books on uh, Puritan, the Puritans' legacy in American politics mm-hmm. that there is, and he cites a variety of uh, tendencies, traits that the big P Puritans shared. Yeah. Um, one of them being what he called anxious introspection, which is this idea that you have to constantly interrogate yourself and your immediate surroundings and your environment for the potential for sin, not even sin itself, but the ver- the potential that exists for sin to appear and materialize. And that mm-hmm. chapter is all about really banal activities that have been dissected by this particular outlook and those that subscribe to this outlook to figure out the horrors lurking within. Like knitting. That uh, you would know, <laughs> right? Like, fly fishing, yeah. like jogging, like gardening. Um, you have to be initiated into this club to be able to see the the racism, feminine, uh, uh, racism sexism, uh, homophobia that lurks therein. But they do and can, uh, and it is because they are constantly interrogating themselves. Uh, in fact, they're interrogating each other, <laughs> but also <laughs> themselves for the, for the um, potential to be seduced by wickedness Mm -hmm. and that wickedness lurks just beneath the surface. And if you have the proper education and indeed the proper faith, uh, you can discern it, whereas others cannot. Uh, So, yes, there is an element of paranoia that certainly would probably dovetails overlaps with a a conspiratorial mindset. Sure. Although I didn't make that that connection myself, but it's not wrong. Mm. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And more on that on that vein um about um just the the inherent disorder and evil in the world uh that is um sort of ubiquitous um in their belief and if the evils uh these evils are ubiquitous uh these evils that they're seeking to uh get rid of the to end um, then there really can be no boundary separating uh, 
uh, your private life from your public life. And uh, you detail in the book like how to the original Puritan, the old Puritans, uh, there really was no uh, private life. No, and this is not unique to Puritanism either. Anything right. with a revolutionary zeal True. to re- remake the world um, erases the distinctions between private and public life. And mm-hmm. in, in the Puritan context and the American context, it is the idea that the, you know you cannot make a distinction between the sin, the sinner, and the environment in which the sin is committed. They're all they all exist along the same continuum. Um, but, and to to do so would be to tie, tie one, one hand behind your back in this existential fight against evil. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly an aspect of this philosophy uh, and of, of every revolutionary philosophy, but in mm-hmm. the American context in particular, and, in, uh, the Puritan heritage helps us understand why there can be no such thing as private life, as life that exists outside the political sphere, because yeah. the, po- the problems that plague us are total. Yeah. Um, and again, switching gears cause we're getting close to running out of time here uh, you had a part in the book on the sort of self-imposed childlessness of certain progressives because of you know say like the dangers of climate change uh, and that uh, you feel that uh, this this puritanical mindset has pushed them into uh, something that they uh, might not uh, or that they would want to do if circumstances with, you know, just how evil the world is or deadly the world is were different. But, um, I had to think, I mean, I know, I'm sure that's certainly true for some, a very small amount of those people. Uh, but I think this is mostly just, uh, uh, bullshit self justification and just, uh, you know, that's just a way to, uh, mask their uh, certain people to mask their selfishness uh, that uh, you know they never intended on having kids to begin with, um, but now um, they just say that oh it's because of climate change or because of how uh, you know how messed up the world is and that's because you know, it makes them sound more um, thoughtful or uh, or more progressive you know <laughs> in a way that you know I'm not doing this I'm taking a stand against this because of uh, climate change. I'm not having kids. I was like, well, you're probably not going to, you know, didn't seem like the person that was going to have kids anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, maybe, um, I mean, you can only take them at face value. Yeah. And I quote some of them who say, you know, in all earnestness, as far as I can tell that they desperately want the joy and pleasure that comes along with motherhood, for example, is a woman I, I talked to or talked to is quoted. Um, but they are genuinely consumed with anxiety over this uh, the prospect that climate change and half a dozen other evils will leave their children with a with a worse world uh, a, a terrible existence where the living will envy the dead um <laughs> i don't actually know whether that i can't see their hearts i can't judge their motives i can only say you know just dissect their quotes and it seems rather likely that at least some of this moral blackmail this emotional blackmail is having its intended mm-hmm. effect it would be it's not unobjectionable to us who are natalist to some degree or another. But if this was just a personal choice, a personal decision, it wouldn't be something that I would weigh in on. Um, I'm weighing in on it insofar as these people are being denied a joy and a privilege that they desperately want yeah. because of a series of moral prescriptions around their choices that are frankly crazy. Certainly, you know, conditions that are probably going to be illusory once they 
decide to actually take the plunge. Um, yeah, maybe they're convincing themselves of, of circumstances that don't exist, but they are convinced. At least that's what they say. And, uh, you know, the break, the hostility towards uh, an ungoverned family structure, hostility towards the family generally, but hostility towards an ungoverned family structure uh, certainly typifies this movement. It has leaned into the state in ways that would horrify their parents. The, the progressive parenting movement was, mm -hmm. uh, say what you will about it, permissive, um, undisciplined, unruly. At least it emphasized pleasure. At least it emphasized um, uh, self-gratification. Um, now, and it emphasized your individual ability to um, navigate your environment. Not anymore. Now progressive parenting has fallen out of favor. Yeah. And they're leaning very heavily on institutions like the state, like courts, like child protective services, to do the work of um, policing ungoverned family structures. This is as puritanical as it gets. In their day, they were the tithing men who would go from uh, family to family to ensure that children were being properly parented, properly disciplined, because the family was the primary economic unit of society. Mm. So we do see some parallels there as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just it seems to me for a lot of them, uh, just because you know birth rates are just going down anyway, but uh, that a lot of them just seems that that they're trying to make a selfish decision sound altruistic. You know, or, I don't uh, think you're wrong. Yeah, I, I, yeah for yeah. most of them, in fact, yeah, probably, probably. But at least yeah, I'm sure. I, I'm sure there's some. Yeah, they're being deprived of something they actually want by this psychosis that's being imposed on them. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, another. Uh, theory I was just sort of when I was reading the book I was just sort of popped up I don't know half-baked uh, just thought that I had that um, that maybe this sort of new puritanicalism uh, this politicization of everything is sort of a, a good thing because it seems to be that it's really a lot of this stuff is just happening on like the online world and it's not so much um, happening in sort of real life in a way I mean certainly in like well I live in South Florida on an island. So, um, that was <laughs> nice. yeah, yeah, it is. Um, uh, but it, it, that none of this stuff ever really seems to come up <laughs> anywhere. You know what I mean? Like people, yeah. I don't know. Uh, so I'm sure it's different, in different places, but it seems like, uh, that this is stuff that's just sort of in like sort of very blue bubbles. This is happening a lot or, and mostly just like online for like people that are outside of those blue bubbles, but maybe, thinking that maybe if like social media and like online life becomes so infested with this stuff, uh, you know, again, with the politicization, politicization of everything that, you know, maybe uh, people will actually um, stop using it so much and, uh, you know, social media and, and or sp stop spending so much time online and actually go outside and look to their own actual physical lived communities for, you know, community <laughs> instead of trying to find it you know through their screens or you know through their online lives uh so maybe in a way uh it might be a good thing that we're going through this period right now i don't know that's just, that's just something i thought of when i was reading no that. i don't think you're wrong i'm, I'm well I, I certainly i my thesis here is that this is a short life phenomenon as cults of misery tend to be yeah and when, if it is a short life phenomenon, we will emerge from it. The, the new Puritans will have had their mark on society. Uh, they already have made a, mm -hmm. a mark on society, and not all of it is unobjectionable. 
Um, but they are most certainly engaged in a campaign to remake the world, and they will not be successful in that regard. And when, right. what emerges from that will uh, have a healthy mistrust, hopefully, of this kind of sanctimonious um, immiseration that is otherwise unsustainable. So, yeah, uh, I can see and and do see a positive outcome here, um, but it probably gets a little bit worse before it gets better. Yeah. Now, um, I, I, I wrote this down when I was reading Chapter 4. I want to go back to my notes. I just want to make sure I get it perfect. It's a little uh, bad, but, but I'm sort of glad we're on the same page because um, I wrote when I was reading Chapter 4, uh, quote, shouldn't we just mercilessly, mercilessly mock these woke uh, MFers uh, into oblivion? And then I was reading further along in like chapter eight, and you basically said that the you know the sort of the best way to deal with uh, this sort of thing is just a, a mockery, and like endless mockery of these types, uh, you know, and sort of sort of just uh, uh, mock their pretensions, and you know, just sort of uh, you know take the piss out of them, which is uh, uh, you know that's the 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 one thing people that are you know super uptight and super serious really can't stand. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, is, there's. Is, sorry, I, yeah, go ahead. No, it was, but, it's, they, they really, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. The logic behind you know if if these people are are bullies as yeah. it were, and they do have a tendency to to be a little pushy oh, and, and impose on you, and then the prescription for dealing with bullies is you just ignore them, and yeah. That works. They don't get the attention that they crave from you. They don't get the supplication from you that they demand. Um, and if you do give them attention, you're giving them what they want. Right. But if you give them mockery and you mock them, you're, all give, you're giving them attention. You're giving them what they want. But you're also giving a whole lot more people what they want, which is to hear the, this, this uh, belief structure lampooned and satirized mm-hmm. in ways that very few – uh, particularly on the left, entertainment uh, creators, creators of cultural products, are afraid to do. It's and terrifying. there is all the material in the universe there if they have the permission to use it. Yeah, I think it's just going to be like a sort of like the dam sort of breaking. It's going to be just like a couple chips. Uh, you know, it's going to have to come from somebody on the left. I mean, other than like Bill Maher. Uh or like Chappelle because they've been sort of read out of the movement. Um, but I think uh, uh, that's whoever fair. does it will be read out of the movement. It's oh, just yeah. going to be an ever shrinking movement until True. the point where you have a critical mass that is willing to buck this trend. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, we've gone uh, just about 45 minutes now, which then you got to go. So there was lots of other stuff I want to talk about, but uh, you know, there's only so much you can talk about in an hour, but um so I'll just end uh, this basically with the question I ask everybody who comes on the podcast, and that's, uh, you know, um, what what would you like the audience to get out of this book? Uh, what's the what's the one thing you'd want them to take away from reading it? I want them to have fun. That's all <laughs> I want. I don't care if you take away one iota of a moral or a value or anything. I hope you enjoy yourself. That's all I ch- set out to do for myself. And I hope very much that you find this to be an enjoyable read. I this is the book I would like to read. The book I would like to read. So I hope you enjoy it too. All right, great. Well, uh, anything else uh, you want to plug uh, before we go? Anything other appearances or you know the uh, the commentary podcast? I guess right. Uh, that's yeah, you it, can I, you can read me at commentary.org, uh, commentary magazine, or MSNBC where I write like two or three times a month. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Noah C Rothman. 
Yeah. Hopefully, uh, um, I gave you more time to talk than uh, John Ponhartz does on. Everybody <laughs> says that. It's it's bizarre. You know, John no, gave me all the runway in the world. Yeah, I know, I know. He's uh, a, he, I mean, he he tends to. Uh, uh, I mean, I love him, but uh, you know, he tends to sort of. Uh, well, I mean, it's his magazine. It's a running he, gag. Yeah, he can he can take the lead. You know, it's his magazine. So. Sure. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So um, the book. Again, is the rise of the new Puritans fighting back against Progressive's war on fun. Uh, the book is a lot of fun. Um, I uh, highly recommend it to uh, everybody out there. I read it uh, uh, on my vacation. Uh, just got back a couple days ago. It was actually uh, my beach read for a couple days. So uh, it's definitely a beach read uh, for you people out there going on vacation. So uh, highly recommend it to everybody out there. And you know, for uh, um, you know, even if a gift for uh, people, uh, buy it for the uh, for the puritanical progressive uh, in your life, and uh, see if uh, they have any thoughts on it. But uh, yeah, highly recommend it for everybody. Make sure you got get a copy. And again, the book is the rise of the new Puritans fighting back against progressives' war on fun. Uh, the author is Noah Rothman. Uh, Mr. Rothman, again, thank you very very much for coming on the podcast and discussing the book with me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you uh, have more books you'd like, have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach me, reach out to me at uh, my email address, which is uh, tbenson@heartland.org. That's t-b-e-n-s-o-n at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And you can also reach out to us on the the uh, Twitter account we have for the. Uh, uh, for the podcast, which is uh, Twitter handle is at illbooks at i l l books, so you can uh, you know give us a follow or if you have any questions or comments on anything, feel free to leave us a DM and all that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, make sure you do that. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, mom. Bye bye.